Hello, book lovers, and welcome to the April Vintage Podcast. This month, we're taking a long, hard look at President Trump's first 100 days in office and how even this early, his election is being reflected in the world of books. Rykoff gets us started by visiting Howard Jacobson, where the pair discuss Jacobson's new novel, Pussy. It's the story of Prince Fracassus, the idle and boastful son of a casino owner who may or may not be the one to make his country great again. Written in a flurry of activity and indeed fury in the immediate aftermath of Trump's election, Pussy springs from Jacobson's still present anger about the crowning ugliness of 2016. Listen on. Howard, thank you for allowing me into your very lovely flat, I must say. Uh, My pleasure. (laughs) We're going to talk about Pussy, which is quite an unusual publishing venture, I suppose, because publishing often moves quite slowly and doesn't react quite as fast as you have. I wanted to know, first of all, what the spur was for you to actually sit down and, and write this book. The spur was waking up in the middle of American election night, having gone to bed, I having gone to bed, feeling uneasy, but unable to believe that anything would happen, but, mm. that, but that Hillary um, would win, and waking up in the middle of the night in shock and actually in pain, not with the radio on, but with a kind of goblin mm. sitting on my chest, some horrible, demonic omen of something terrible. And I sat, jumped up in bed. My wife jumped up in bed. It was, I don't know what it was, four o'clock, I don't know when the new... And we thought... We're not feeling good. We put radio, we put several radios on and heard it. This is the most bizarre, impossible, extraordinary and shocking thing, really. A truly, truly shocking thing, it seemed to me. Not because I don't share the man's politics, but because, well, because of reasons that we'll, we will get round to talking about. Normally, in, um, that's to say, over the last 20 years, I wrote, I would have written column about it or several columns about it Mm. for the independent i had an independent column that lasted 20 years but that came to an end at the the beginning of last year the end of 2016 because the independent closed i had no column how wonderful it was to have no column to relax not to have to worry every friday morning about what (laughs) i'm going to say and then the year started to unfold with its horrors brexit for me being one of them intensely horrible i thought and a feeling that um, public debate had deteriorated, that we were living in quite ugly times. Um, And then this, which was the crowning ugliness and impossibility of them all. And no column to write. Mm. I had no column. Mm. And I said to my wife, what what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'll just go mad. She said, well, you could always write a book about it. And I said, right, let's get up. Now we're up. Let's have breakfast. And I'm going to my dad. And I started... That morning. That morning. And I knew what I had to do. I knew it had to be some sort of a fable, some kind of fairy story, because this was not real. I could not write about this as real because it wasn't a real event. I still don't consider it a real event. Some (laughs) fantasy has happened. Such a person could not have that job. It could not be. I've been watching him all year with some fascination. I'd been in America on a tour with my, my book, Shylock is My Name, and at the end of every, every reading, I'd go home to my hotel in America and watch him with amazement and think, if I keep watching, will he find some more words? Will he have more than the five words that he, pos- <laughs> what he possesses? The fewer words he had, the more some people out there liked him. And his triumph then was a triumph of wordlessness. Mm. And I, as a writer, felt that this was, uh, <laughs> this is an arrogance, but if I say an attack on me, you know what I mean. That yeah, my world, yeah. the things that I value and care about, literature, words, expression, was the very thing that was under attack now. It had been in Brexit. There'd been, you know, that talk about no experts. Mm-hmm. There'd been a sort of a defiant, vulgar philistinism creeping into things, mm-hmm. as though anybody who knows anything is the enemy of the people. 
I was already writing a novel. I was well into a novel and looking forward to a quiet 2017 <laughs> to finish it. All my travels for Shylock over, I was going to write, write this novel of the sort I normally write, long and, and reflective and funny. I had to stop that and, and start this because, A, I had to do it. There was no choice. I had to do it because I couldn't have lived with everything that was boiling up inside me. But there was also a race. There was a race against me, the possibility of my having a heart attack before I finished. Oh, that this has got to be done quickly. I thought it would have to be done quickly because he'd never last more than three days after inauguration. He'd be impeached, surely. Mm. Or someone would just say, we cannot have, as President of the United States, someone with four words. <laughs> That's that. But I also thought every single writer in the country will be doing this. Mm. They'd all have woken up with the goblin on their chest on the night of his election, and they would all want to write this. Not How could they not? Mm. They'd all want to do it in different forms. So there was a terrific sense of urgency mm. about it. And I wrote with a kind of urgency that's not characteristic of me. I'm a slow writer. I like to take two, two and a half years over a novel. I don't, if I write more than 500 pages in a day, I feel sick at the end of the day. I feel I've you know, spilled my guts. Mm. Can't wait to get up in the following morning and remove those words and make it slower, calmer, more considered. In the end, it was written in six weeks. That urgency that you spoke of when, when writing the book, you clearly still have that urgency now when you're talking about it. You're still something you feel very passionately about. And I just wondered, are you hoping that the book will achieve something? And if so, what do you hope it will achieve? Is it simply about putting those words out there and that passion out there? Or are you hoping it might maybe do even more than that? Will I bring him down? <laughs> will Pussy bring down will the Pussy president? Will Pussy bring down the president, yeah. Wouldn't well, that be... even I, fantastic as I am, uh, <laughs> in my hopes for books... Uh, don't expect anything of that kind. And I didn't expect anything. I don't expect anything. I just, it just had to be done. There's something that was interesting. When you're watching the campaign, there was sort of a grim fascination watching... I used to wake up in the morning and check my phone and kind of go, what absurd thing has he said now? You know, Because there would always be something every day, which was, in its way, entertaining. And then as we got closer and closer to the actual polling date, it started to become clear that he might win... And then it suddenly didn't seem quite so funny. And now here he is as president, and the, the things that would have been entertaining are now quite scary. What, do we, what do you, does one do to counter him as president? You, you deride. You, that's, the, that, I mean, that's the first thing. Derision, I think, is the first duty. You mm. must think, and that's the duty, of, it seems to me, of every, of every citizen faced with a gross absurdity in our political life. Deride it. Mm -hmm. Scorn it. Never normalise it. There's pleasure in derision, there's pleasure in, in writing it, there's pleasure in receiving it. When you don't have words, you can't think. You can't progress a thought. Mm -hmm. When you don't have words, you are trapped in something that even comes before thought. Grunting, it's just a kind of grunt of dissatisfaction with all those things. And until you have language, the wonderful thing is that language helps you. It moves a thought. You speak a few words, and they and words beget other words. Mm. You feel you reach, you reach for words. I never once in the time that I've, I've watched Trump speak seen him reach for a word. I've, he's even said, "I've got words. I've got <laughs> the best he's words." Got the best words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best words. <laughs> <laughs> Means I mean, to the degree that he's got all the words he needs, he's right. Yeah. He's got all the words he needs to think the things he thinks. Hideous spectacle. Can you imagine what it's like? What the what the spaces are like in, inside that mind, mm. where the two or three words, you know, <laughs> bang about, <laughs> bang about like, like balls on a bagatelle table. But then the shocking thing is, the really shocking thing, there are 60 million people there who didn't mind. There are admirers here mm. who will say that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. they, it's as if they, in his wordlessness, it would seem, they find something they most want to hear, which is, which is nothing. Mm -hmm. They want there to be nothing. It, would, it seems to me that they trust him more, the fewer thoughts he has, the fewer words he has in which to express a thought, mm. and more importantly than that, to find a thought. Because a thought isn't just something that you just happen to have and then splat, throw it out at people. You find it. They seem to want to remain in that state themselves, and that's what's so shocking. And what, what Trump is doing is he's not empowering the American people, he's disempowering mm. the American people. Mm. That only helps the tyrant, doesn't it? If you say, I need you to remain stupid, uneducated and ignorant of the facts, you know, so then, I, then that allows me to, to do what I yes. want. Yes. 
and that and that's the last thing that you that you think you know that they, that you can actually defy facts in that way mm. this is you know this is this is the next stage on mm. right you could deny what the 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 orwell thing two and two is five mm. once you're deprived of the words to think about those things the mirth the skepticism mm. some skepticism the ability to think your own thoughts for yourself once you're deprived of those things yeah two and two are five because i want them to be five I want to ask just with the naming of your character and, and indeed the, the setting of your book, we have Prince Fracasus, we have Herbs Ludus, and these are words based on Latin. I wondered if, again, part of this reaction to a man with no words was to, was to do this, was to sort of use these words that you know he probably wouldn't know the meaning of. So herbs meaning a, a walled city and ludus is meaning play. Play, yeah. So it's like a sort of a playground for him, for the powerful, is yes. to have this city that you yes. sort of rule over. He does seem like somebody who, who enjoys the game at times, and then there are other times when you can see that he's bored. I wondered whether, in trying to work out what do people do about Trump, is, is, is it more likely that he might even just sort of grow bored of the game and move on, rather think, than being deposed or impeached or anything like that? I think, if, I think if he thinks that impeachment's coming, he will get up and walk. Yeah. There's a very good chance. Whatever happens, if, he, if he's got rid of it, it might be that he serves... Eight years and finds a reason to, you know, yeah. some way in which he can serve another four. Who knows? <laughs> four and four are two, not eight. Um, but m- my guess would be that he will, his, he would not be able to take the idea of being unloved mm. um, or demeaned, and he and he would walk and he would say, "I've done." I don't think he'd be able to say, "I'm bored with it." He might say, "I'm bored with this now. Mm. I'll start another beauty contest. <laughs> I'll open another and open another casino." Yeah. Half the casinos he's opened have gone bankrupt. This is the wonderful thing. People talk about him as a successful business. Self-made, they yeah. say. Huh? Self, he's not self-made. His father left him billions of pounds. He yeah. squandered a lot of it, and a lot of his businesses are bankrupt. Yeah. He, isn't a, he isn't a good businessman. I actually, I did one little bit of research for this book while I was writing. I wasn't going to do anything. But I thought, mm. I'll just have a look. I noticed there was a book called The Art of the Deal. My God, you want to see The Art of the Deal? <laughs> I mean, I don't know a lot about business, but I've been a small businessman in my time. You and I could open a casino tomorrow with more effect and more knowledge of what a casino is than he did. People, and millions of Americans were reading this book which says, you know, if you, how to be a businessman. Know what you want. Mm. Aspire to what you want and get it. If somebody opposes you, fri- I mean, it, these are banalities. You couldn't invent them. Mm. There's a kind of genius in being so, in being so banal. Yeah. And that's been the fascination in watching. That's been the, the, almost the secret of his success, isn't it? The, the, as you say, the, the, the fewer words that you use, the more banal the sentiment that you express, the easier it is for you know, the majority of the population to go along with it. Well, you don't, want to, you don't want to say that about them. You want them to be, you know, I go on harbouring the idea that there is, there is something about the idea of the people that we should be able to trust, that mm. why we should trust people en masse. And in fact, I don't trust people en masse. But you always hope the minute people get together, they will think the wrong things, clap the wrong team... But individually, you hope that individually they will peel off. Mm. That one day they will wake up and go, this is just drivel. But what you were saying about herbs, ludus and fracassus, mainly what I was, I mean, what you said was ingenious, that I was going for the kind of language he might not be able to understand. I didn't think that. I was just going for the kind of half-conscious model in my mind was 18th century satire, Mm. Swift Mm -hmm. and Dr. Johnson. I've always liked Rasselas and A Tale of the Tub and Condide. Mm. And you don't invoke the names of Swift and Dr. Johnson without knowing, you know, you can make a fool of yourself. (laughs) Um, And I don't think they were writing them. I think think Johnson wrote Rasselas in only a few weeks. I am not Dr. Johnson. But they had at their disposal, because of their individual genius, but also because of their culture, Mm. a... A, an English language. I was going to say they had individually a facility, but it isn't that. They had a kind of grandiloquence available to them that we have to fight for mm. to get. And I wanted a certain grandiloquence. I can't claim I could, have, I could match them if I had you know, 20 years to write it. There is a novel to be written. I'm not the person to write it, but somebody write you know, a, cons- my, a considered view of how, how this has come about. Mm. What's led to this? It would be sociological as well as political. Mm. It would be about culture. It would be about language. It would go back to Mrs. Thatcher. It would go back to Harry Potter. It would go back, certainly would go back to Twitter and Facebook mm. because Twitter is the means by which this has been made possible. Mm. It cometh the Twitter, cometh the man. And there is, there is a perfect connection between a form of expression, yeah. much liked by a lot of those people, and... 
and the man who, you know, who sees this as his natural medium. There is a terrific, you know, cultural analysis and drama to be written, and it would take a long time, but that's not what I've done here. Look, it'd be lovely if a book, you'd, you want every one of your books to live and go on, but my feeling is that this is of, this is of the hour, and if it lives, it lives. Let it just live of the hour, mm. I'll be satisfied. With delicious irony, of course, I will be using Twitter to tell everybody about this interview and about this book. Such are the ironies of modern life. <laughs> Howard, it's fantastic to speak to you about Pussy. Thank you so much for, for giving us the time. It's my pleasure. It's lovely to talk about it. That was a fascinating discussion, and now we're going to move into the world of non-fiction. Here's Tim Snyder. History does not repeat, but it does instruct. As the Founding Fathers debated our Constitution, they took instruction from the history they knew. Concerned that the democratic republic they envisioned would collapse, they contemplated the descent of ancient democracies and republics into oligarchy and empire. As they knew, Aristotle warned that inequality brought instability, while Plato believed that demagogues exploited free speech to install themselves as tyrants. In founding a democratic republic upon law, and establishing a system of checks and balances, the Founding Fathers sought to avoid the evil that they, like the ancient philosophers, called tyranny. They had in mind the usurpation of power by a single individual or group, or the circumvention of law by rulers for their own benefit. Much of the succeeding political debate in the United States has concerned the problem of tyranny within American society, over slaves and over women for example. It is thus a primary American tradition to consider history when our political order seems imperiled. If we worry today that the American experiment is threatened by tyranny, we can follow the example of the Founding Fathers and contemplate the history of other democracies and republics. The good news is that we can draw upon more recent and relevant examples than ancient Greece and Rome. The bad news is that the history of modern democracy is also one of decline and fall. That was Timothy Snyder reading from his own audiobook of On Tyranny. To discuss the book and its genesis, I'm joined by the publishing director of The Bodley Head, Stuart Williams, and creative manager, Will Smith. I'm really thrilled to be joined by uh, Stuart Williams, publisher of The Bodley Head, and uh, Will Smith, who is responsible for the marketing of, of books um, throughout the company, I think. Is that right, Will? That's right, yes. Um, and we are talking about a very specific kind of publishing, something that is uh, a little bit of a departure. We're talking about Timothy Snyder, a historian predominantly known for his work in the Third Reich, is one of those writers who, with good reason, I think, I would associate with an enormous, thick tome filled with years and years of research. And I'm guessing, Stuart, so would you, until da-da-da. Absolutely, yeah. The recent, his last two books have been major, scholarly, lengthy books, and this is totally different. Wrist-breakers. Wrist-breakers, indeed. And this is, this is totally different in character and execution. Just tell us how it came about, because this, again, is a, a, an interesting story. Well, I think this was written in um, a white heat at speed. It started life as a Facebook posting um, written in mid-November last year. So Ooh, just uh, casting our minds back, I think there was an election. Uh, and uh, this is a reaction and an intervention. And um, what comes of it, a practical, practical guide to what we can do about those events. So just explain to us in, in a little bit more detail now that it's a book sitting between us, a, a compact uh, book on tyranny, what it is. This is 20 lessons from the 20th century. He's tracing lines between what happened often in the 1930s and what is happening now in America and around the world, but predominantly in America. Um, and Tim is making connections um, he's drawing out parallels and he is suggesting on the back of those 20 things that we as citizens, as vigilant citizens, should look out for and that we might 
do. Things that we can actually do. Yeah, simple but instructions. I'm, I'm guessing are things beyond, for example, signing petitions or going on marches. Yeah, and I think they're all completely, they feel, what's really thrilling about this is that they feel achievable um, and... So what sort of things? Just give us a... He is talking about things like being aware of the language we're using, the language that we're using and the language that our leaders are using. Um, He's talking about establishing a private life and guarding our private lives. Um, He's writing about patriotism. Um, He's writing about um, how you do your job, how you think about the sort of professional ethics, whether you're uh, a lawyer or a publisher, or a civil servant, or whatever. Just he's thinking about the threats that um, those jobs face in difficult times. So how you hold on to your ethics, yeah, and your your practice of ethics, yeah. I guess. Um, so the result, as I as I said, is this book. Now, Will, um, yes. here you're given this book. Mm. It's come about very quickly. There's no long lead time to plan any kind of campaign, any marketing, any publicity beyond what is immediately achievable. Yes. And so I know you came up with a quite unorthodox idea. Well, we're still talking about it as something of an industry first, and no one's corrected us yet, which is uh, which. <laughs> so I think we're in the clear. But um, but yeah, the marketing strategy for this book was similarly sort of came about very quickly, and it certainly was informed by the way the book had been written um, and the sense of urgency around the book. Again, we were used to Timothy Snyder writing these fantastic sort of wide-ranging and very very sort of heavy-duty books about big subjects um, uh, all incredibly impressive and well-reviewed and certainly had many fans in-house but this book seems a complete departure and again it's short it's snappy I I too was very struck by the fact that each of these lessons that he teaches is, is practicable he's not necessarily asking you to man the barricades straight away it's something that you can read as an ordinary citizen and a sort of the sound bite that I've been sort of trotting out a lot is it doesn't make you feel better, but it does make you feel less helpless. It makes you feel that you, as an individual, can do something. And um, and as I say, it's written in this very urgent and immediate way. And I think through discussing the book, we just came up with this idea um, to essentially get it to as many people uh, in as quick a period of time as possible. Mm-hmm. And that was putting the entire thing up um, on in a row of posters. So not a traditional poster campaign because it was one site for one, one at one time where was the site it was in uh, it was in east london near old street near silicon roundabout they call it um and uh, and the idea was to put the entire book up there um and be bold and some somehow sort of carry on the spirit of the book into the marketing campaign and reference things like graffiti and propaganda the whole idea of that that nailing your colors to the mast putting putting everything out there and hopefully grabbing some people's attention, which which it seems to have done. So essentially, you gave away yes. your intellectual property, or <laughs> Tim Snyder's intellectual yeah. property. Yeah, and um, I think it was great because, I mean, I think I've, we, we first talked about it, uh, Stuart and I, and I think, Stuart, got, you got it straight away. Yeah, I mean, the best thing, um, a lot of the best things uh, that happen are when someone... Or Will puts their head around the door and says, "Have you got a minute for a crazy idea?" And that's what that's what happened here. Um, and to, to see it realised was was brilliant for all involved. And it was what was especially um, remarkable, I think, was the sort of collaborative mm. nature of it as well. That also suited the book. Um, it's seven designers here. It's thirteen designers um, from Kingston. It's a proper group effort. Mm. but done at speed. How long did it stay up there? It was for one week. Um, And again, as Stuart said, every single person involved in the process, which is actually quite a lot of people, the moment you sat down and pitched the idea to them, they went, yes, we're doing it. Like, that's a great idea, and we're going to make it happen. And it couldn't have happened without everyone at every stage being so can-do. So first it was Stuart and I, and then Timothy Snyder seemed to go for the idea straight away. Instantly. Yeah, and then... um, Obviously, Suzanne, our creative, uh, creative director, her designers, she went to Kingston to ask for their help. We've got this ongoing relationship with Kingston where we involve the students at, at, in different parts of our publishing for it amounts to great work experience for them and sort of interesting sort of uh, first step into an industry. 
Um, but then also even the the poster company who we work with a lot, Jack Arts, um, we do all sorts of great fun stuff with them, projecting book covers on buildings and installing pinball machines in bookshops and stuff like that. And I sat down with them and said, this is really short notice. We, you know, the, the budget is limited and all the rest of it. And they, again, they just got the idea and they helped us make it happen. Um, and so it's been a really sort of edifying experience. Completely. Can I uh, sound a, a note of opposition here? Yes. Can I, may I throw the cat among the pigeons? <laughs> um, and it requires me just to, to, to uh, paint a very brief picture in words of uh, where you, your, the site for your poster campaign, mm. which as you say is often referred to as Silicon Roundabout. Um, it's where a lot of the tech companies and startups and co-working spaces and creative industries have their, their base. It's also... Uh, one of the epicenters, um, I'm saying so I don't live very far away, of um, what is, you know, called hipster London, I suppose. It's mm-hmm. Shoreditch, Haggerston, um, leading up to Dalston, Spitalfields. It's it's a kind of hip and vibrant place. As I say, I don't live very far away, but I live in a much more sedate and middle-aged hmm. area. Um, but in one sense, I think you'd have to admit you're sort of preaching to the converted would you not say that a genuinely radical thing would have been to put a campaign like that in the heart of Brexit land, for example, mm. outside what is now being referred to as the metropolitan liberal elite, out of their heartlands, out of our bubble, and actually have taken it somewhere where these ideas would have been perhaps more unsettling to people? Maybe we will next week. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's a really interesting point, and the striking thing when we got the manuscript, first of all, was how quickly people in-house who hadn't read Tim Snyder before um, got it and embraced it and started championing it. So that was part of the catalyst to take it to a different place, um, to where his books had existed before, which had been you know, a, a hardback, probably older demographic. Um, so we were following that to an extent. But it is interesting that one of the booksellers I spoke to who'd sold 50 copies inside 10 days was in Deepest Chelsea. So it is not purely for the young or for hipsters. It is it is reaching, a, I think, a diverse readership. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really interesting idea. We should take it on the road. I mm. should point out, having said uh, Brexit land, that we, we accept and welcome... Uh, all listeners here, and although I might be a hard remainer, uh, you know, we don't all have to be. Of course, of course not. However, yeah. you know, my the, the point I'm making is obviously that uh, the use of a book like this, and this just brings us onto a slightly wider point. Um, the aim of a book like this is reach and engagement. And one of the things that strikes me about this really, really clever campaign is that we all are all in an accelerated culture, yes. grabbing people's yeah. attention for books, which even a short book like this is a longer investment of time than, than watching the news or going on Twitter or whatever it is. And yet we also know how valuable it is. Mm. So that must be part of one of the things that you want to achieve. Yeah, and then I think the, the, other, the other reason for, for thinking about East London was the fact that Yes, it's an interesting, you know, uh, unusual way of treating a book and a poster campaign, but also it's one place and one time. Yet, when you put it in front of people who do broadcast their daily lives and interesting things they see um, on, like, on a regular basis, what you do is give it a second life online. And the amount of sort of n- online news outlets that picked it up mm-hmm. actually sort of amplified that, that effect. You know, if you throw a rock in a pool, those ripples went far and wide. Um, and then the other thing as well, I do, I mean, I would n- there's nothing more than I'd love to see these posters sort of plastered across the UK. But again, um, in, in, on that point of preaching to the converted, one of the things, the ways in which we've talked about this book is it is a tool. And, you know, you can read mm. it and you can come away with some practical advice mm. in order to be a more effective citizen and a more conscious citizen. And in that way, it's for people who are sort of, um, concerned by the current political situation as much as for people who might be m- more happy to go with it. I think I think both both sides of that uh-huh. coin can sure, come to the book and, sure. and get something from it. 
Of course, you've done uh, you know, the company. This company has done another piece of accelerated publishing in Howard Jacobson's novella Pussy, which has been published uh, very recently. And again, as you mentioned, the white heat. I think that's how he describes having written it. He wrote it in six weeks or something yeah. like that. Um, you know, putting aside the novel that he'd been working on for a couple of years. Um, obviously, that's an enormous challenge to writers. Uh, to respond to events. They also, I think, many whom I've spoken to, think, well, kind of what is the point if I don't? How can you respond to those challenges as publishers? I mean, clearly you have in these two books, but as a more sort of overall kind of feeling, how do you respond to the times? I think it's a really complex question. We obviously see a lot of proposals for books that react to the news that... Uh, that take current events as their starting point. And the timeline of publishing makes it difficult for, for those to become books. Um, this was written very, very fast. Um, and I think it offered something that uh, newspapers weren't offering. It's it's not an opinion piece by a journalist. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something by a world-class historian that is also instructional, as we've been saying. So there was an added value, there was an added impetus to make this a book that gives it a different character and a lasting quality. And I suppose when we're looking at um, commissioning books that address current events, one of the questions we're asking ourselves is, what does this do that a newspaper or 24-hour news isn't providing? Because if you can't, if you haven't got a good answer to that question, it probably shouldn't be a book. Just to remind you, you're talking to a journalist. Yes. You know, there's nothing wrong with hot takes and opinion pieces. Pay the mortgage. Not um, at all. However, I take your your point. Of course, you want you want, um, you know, some of the finest minds um, whose work may often take place over a much longer time frame. Mm. Um, occasionally, to be able to step out of those timelines. Yeah. Can publishing do that too? Because as you've, as you've indicated, I mean, often writers will deliver a book and, well, how can we put it kindly? Uh, we don't see it for about another year, do we? Um, yeah, does it pub- have to be that way? It doesn't have to be that way, clearly. I mean, with the, these, these are two really good examples. I think the um, process, as you say, of publishing is not fast, sometimes feels really quite slow. And that's why we think very carefully about which ones we're going to do mm-hmm. briskly and, and which we're going to build an audience and a reception for. So um, I think as long as we're mindful about which route we're taking for which sort of book, then as long as we're mindful about that, then the, the, they can work. And Will, from your point of view, I mean, obviously campaigns can take a long time to build, but you are now working in an area where opinion spreads like wildfire. Yes. Um, word of mouth is, is, you know, perhaps way more important. Word of tweet, we might say, hmm. is way more important than some in some occasions, in some contexts. Certainly. I mean, I think... I mean, I, I probably have a slightly old-school attitude. As I like to make stuff happen in the real world. I think that can still carry a carry a weight that isn't isn't easy to, to replicate um, with something purely online. At the same time, I think both complement one another. So if you do something uh, really interesting in the real world, IRL, then you need to back it up with a, a sort of a, a considered social media and online campaign to make sure it has the biggest impact possible, to use the, the sort of ripples in a pool analogy again. Um, it's it's really important to make sure you get as much out of a single event as you possibly can, and um, and again we're always working really hard to make sure we're uh, learning from each online campaign we do and making sure we're reaching the right people. Publishing front list is one thing, but at Vintage we have this incredible backlist of of uh, sort of current day writers, previous books, and also classic literature as well. And the most interesting thing is um, a part of our job is sort of refreshing that classic literature, that huge backlist that we have and making it seem relevant again. I mean, the large majority of it continues to be relevant, which is somewhat upsetting if you think about history repeating itself. And the fact is we we publish things like Dr. Zhivago, which again sort of attain this this chilling relevance again and Mm. again throughout modern history. And of course, people have have frequently referred to The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. So so again, I mean, obviously we have our fleet-footed publishing of of the the sort of the best minds thinking today and writing about current situation, but if you go back, 
that all of this stuff has happened before and and you know writers artists all the rest of them have dealt with these issues before in in incredible ways and it can be it can be a sort of a chilling experience quite scary but at the same time it can be quite inspiring to know that people have lived through this kind of thing before and come out of it with great works of art and and hopefully having learned something just a final question, and I, I don't expect you to have a, a, a definitive answer because it's impossible, really. But events, as we know, are moving very quickly. Obviously, with a book like this, you are keen to ensure that it has relevance, um, that is, it's future-proof in the sense that it has relevance beyond rolling news. But how do you, as a publisher, sit and think about how you can react to a world that is just does appear to be in chaos? I think what we can do is to be very selective about what we publish, to publish really distinctive, authoritative um, voices and to put them out with total conviction um, and you will find your readers. Thank you both so much. It was really fascinating talking to you about it. And um, On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder is published now, isn't it? It is. Thank you. Thanks. Well, of course, in that conversation, Will Smith alerted us to the importance of Backlist and the importance of remembering the books that we read years ago and how they still remain relevant to us. Now, our other Will, I'm sorry this is so confusing, Will Rycroft, also discussed the books of yesteryear when he was joined by vintage classics editor Charlotte Knight and deputy literary editor at The Times, Fiona Wilson. They were discussing the recent spike of interest in dystopian fiction. And I'm joined now by Fiona Wilson and Charlotte Knight. Hello both. Hello. Hi. We're going to talk about dystopian fiction. And the reason, of course, that we're doing this is that there are a series of books that have been enjoying something of a revival in recent weeks and months. Uh, and it cannot be a coincidence that books like The Handmaid's Tale, 1984, Brave New World have been positively shooting up the charts. I mean, they've been hugely, hugely popular. And so I guess what we're going to talk about is why is this? Why have these books suddenly got into readers' minds and indeed into their hands recently? Um, Charlotte, I'm going to begin with you uh, because as you know, the editor here at uh, Vintage Classics, you know a lot about these books. Oh, yes, <laughs> of course. Um, I think on a very basic level, um, it's that kind of cultural reference thing where people are reading the word Orwellian in the press a lot to describe... Trump's era or whatever and they think damn I, I've always meant to read 1984 I've never really understood what people mean when they say Orwellian and so they just think if I'm ever going to read this book now's the time so I know what everyone's talking about mm. so they go and buy a copy or you know it's people who've read the book at school and have always meant to reread it um, who and, and, and just by the sheer numbers of mentions in the media they they decide to buy the buy the book again, give it, another the book give it a go. Because I think a lot of these books are the ones that they're titles that you may have read at school, and so it's a chance, I suppose, to revisit them because I don't know how much you've taken them in. Sometimes when you read them when you're younger, um, and for others it's books that yeah, that, as you say, that they've never actually got around to reading, and now's the perfect time. Fiona, you've seen all this going on yourself. There are, it's interesting that I think the range of titles, um, The Handmaid's Tale is an interesting one because. I understand we're talking about sort of Trump's America. We're talking about the sort of the change in a the landscape there. When you look at something like The Handmaid's Tale, which is obviously about a theocracy having taken over in, in America, that's not what's happening in America. So why do we think that that book is suddenly resonating with readers? Why, what is it about that book that's, that seems relevant now? I know. You know, the funny thing is, when The Handmaid's Tale first came out, there was a review in the New York Times which said that the problem with this novel is that everything in it is just completely implausible. <laughs> and yet now, when um, I interviewed Atwood recently, she said to me she's blown away by how much has sort of come to pass or how, many re how much resonance the story has today. And I think the thing about um, The Handmaid's Tale is that, um, well, first of all, it's Atwood uh, wrote it by reading um, through newspaper articles and clippings from all, of, all around the world, and it's a sort of composite of all of these ideas. So there are those sort of real-world resonances. But I think, you know, more generally, what people are doing when they're reading um, novels like The Handmaid's Tale is they're, really, they're delving into these dystopias um, with the hope that they contain some sort of da Vinci code for deciphering our present po problems. <laughs> and I think, you know, in, in The Handmaid's Tale, there definitely aren't any answers 
but if you remember the ending, for example, and I hope I'm not giving it away, I think it's classic enough that I can give a spoiler <laughs> here, but um, everything happens in The Handmaid's Tale. We've got this sort of theocratic um, system and um, women are used as walking wounds. Um, you know, Fertility has um, plummeted and women who are fertile are basically used by the wealthy people um, to, um, to carry, carry babies. And at the end, um, we come to a lecture and basically we see that this regime has um, fallen, it's crashed, and it's all um, being taught um, and researched by um, academics. So essentially what she's saying there is that, you know, we need to put all of these dystopias into perspective. They do come and they go and they pass. And then, you know, kind of comically, you end up reflecting on them as an academic. That's really interesting. So in a, in a way, there's a sort of a solace to be taken from reading yeah. that particular book and its dystopia, because what you're saying is, as you say, they come, they go, they're part of history. I mean, awful, obviously, for anybody living through that period, but to know that that isn't the end of history, you know, that, that things move on. And also, is it saying maybe that, that those systems just don't ever survive? They don't, they, they don't become the norm, whereas what we're more used to, I suppose, now, Western democracy... It, it seems far more normal. I think that's entirely what they're saying. I mean, when you look at what dystopia literally means, it's an imaginary place or a condition in which everything bad is possible. And the kind of the opposite is utopia, um, which is this, again, it's this unsustainable um, state in which everything is perfect and good. But the word itself actually means nowhere or no place. Mm. So, you know, it is all imaginary. It is all fictional. Charlotte, I'm going to come back to you because we're going to talk a bit about... Uh, this, this, you mentioned Orwellian, and there's been a bit of debate about which of the books more accurately reflects the world that we live in. Is it 1984 or is it Huxley's Brave New World? Have you got any thoughts on that? Well, I do think that some of the uh, lingo and vocabulary that's emerged over the past few months is distinctly Orwellian, alternative facts yeah. and things like that. That is like something straight out of 1984, and it's chilling and amazing. Um, but I feel like um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley is possibly a more real version of of uh, the world today and the future in that, um, well, it, it, in that book, people are kept placated by a happy drug, mm. which makes them feel good with no side effects, but also with um, mass consumerism, the constant need to work in order to buy more stuff that you don't really need, like constant in advances in technology, which seem really excited, but exciting, but that keep you um, with your head down on your phone or whatever. I can't imagine what that would feel like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and also constant entertainment. Yeah. The idea that we've just got to be constantly consuming um, media. Um, and, and I feel like those sort of um, sedations are very much alive today. Well, it's interesting because I think in, in Brave New World, there is an actual drug that people take. But mm. I feel as though today there's no need for an actual drug because the drug is the consumerism. It is the yeah. addiction to smartphones. It is, as you say, that need to be constantly entertained yeah. and sort of prodded with new content, new ideas, new stuff. And it doesn't even seem to be that happiness is the aim of doing it all. It's just so accepted that that's what you do. You buy stuff, you consume media. Mm. It's not even like people are seeking happiness from it necessarily. It's just life. It is. Well, it's an, a way of filling filling the day. Is it, is it I mean, what would happen? It's that thing, isn't it? You sort of ask people, could you actually put your phone down for just a week? You know, what would you do? Um, I'm actually coming up to a period where I may have to have no phone for two weeks and wow. already I'm getting a little bit sort of sweaty about it thinking, but what will I do? Because <laughs> I'm so used to picking it up, using it to do everything, checking the news, uh, you know, doing social media, banking, God knows what else. So, yeah, what, what, why, why are we so addicted to that feedback of, of, that you get from a smartphone? Or yeah, a I mean, I don't know. I think it's completely insane, but it <laughs> is worrying. <laughs> I mean, there is that book that's just come out, Adam Alter. I'm yeah. not sure if you've had a chance to read it, but, you know, that reinforcement of getting a like, it's literally a dopamine rush. You yeah. just get happy every single time you get that feedback from the world around you. But it's, yeah, it's quite sinister. I, I can't mean, imagine it. As somebody who, who looks after the vintage social media channels, I am... <laughs> 
I'm about as bad a drug addict as you could possibly be <laughs> to that. Because, of course, you know, my, not my, my worth, but certainly my job is measured by how well I do those things and how engaged people are in, in what we're doing and talking about. And, and obviously, I hope that I hope that you are, listeners. <laughs> um, but it is, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have this sort of need to, to get that feedback. Let's move it to a slightly different area now, which is this idea of alternative histories, uh, which in many ways is slightly more terrifying, I think, than, than the dystopian fictions, because it's a very real world with just maybe one fact or one thing changed about it. And I'm thinking here of books like The Plot Against America by Philip Roth or Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, um, and there's a few programs on TV at the moment, The Man in the High Castle or SSGB. Why do we think those are very popular at the moment? Um, is it because we see a parallel between how a, a simple change in rhetoric, for example, in America can make it feel like a very different world? What do you think, Fiona? I mean, with It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, the parallels between um, the the narrative and what went on in Trump's campaign, they're just, it's its quite freaky. I mean, it, you know, there's, it's an election, it's set during an election year in America, and it's during a period of economic uncertainty. You've got millions of impoverished, disillusioned voters who want solutions, and then suddenly this charismatic outsider comes in, and um, he professes to be this professional common man who throws his hat into the ring for the president and pledges to make America a proud and rich land again. I mean, if that isn't Trump, I don't know who is. Yeah. But um, at the same time, you know, it's this, this is a novel that's set in 1935. And um, this isn't meant to be uh, a real situation. You know, I think Ursula Le Guin talks about um, utopias and dystopias and their parallels with the real world really well when she says that these are just intellectual places. And, you know, this is a, it can't happen here as a satire uh, and it should be taken at that level, you know, that we've seen it go into the bestseller charts mm. and that everyone is getting so excited about it. It's because there are just these, these, these funny parallels, but it doesn't really go deeper than that. And I think people who read to the end of it can't happen here might even be a little bit disappointed with where the book goes. Um, I think that what I find it interesting is that, that people, um, people turn to books, I think, at any point in their life when things are a bit difficult. I find it very interesting that people are turning to fiction in this particular era, and I wonder whether it's because they don't or can't trust the so-called facts that they're used to taking for granted, you know, that come from the media, whether that's newspapers or TV news, whatever. And in this age of alternative facts, is fiction the only place to really make sense of what's going on and to maybe even think about what you can do in, in response to that? What do you think, Charlotte? Uh, yeah, I think when you have um, a world in which even a kind of like, even reasoned debate no longer seems to hold any power. Um, it's quite tempting to turn to fiction uh, as a means of, of working things out, even if with social media you're, you're not even accessing a reasoned debate from the other side of the divide, um, then fiction is a kind of like safe space to explore the imaginative possibilities mm. of, of where we are. What's really interesting is that some of these books, so for example, Brave New World, uh, The Handmaid's Tale and 1984 were actually, they were gifted. You know, some uh, anonymous benefactor paid for several copies of that book to be given away in a, in a bookstore in America as a way of kind of saying, you know, you, you can't trust what you read in a newspaper or watch on Fox News maybe, but read this book and you will actually understand more about what's going on. Yeah. And does it also give people some kind of, I don't know, spur to action? Because reading about this in books is one thing, but it doesn't really mean anything unless you actually know what to do with that information. Yeah, I do think the books are being used as an act of resistance. Mm. And I think The Handmaid's Tale was also given away in a bookshop in Norwich as well. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's an important function of them, especially as a book like The Handmaid's Tale, which is concerned mostly with the reproductive rights of women. Mm. And that is a hot topic in America at the moment yeah. because it's, it, Trump is making moves to become ac to decrease access to abortions in America. Um, and so uh, exploring the kind of um, worst-case scenario of mm. a policy like that is exactly what The Handmaid's Tale does. And it might, in fact, be much more persuasive um, to read that novel if you're not sure where you stand than to try and enter into debate with somebody. Mm. Is it a way of sort of saying, this isn't where we are now, but if we carry on down this path, this is what could happen? Yeah, I think so. As absurd as it might sound, you know, when you're reading it now. 
is that the purpose of, of, of dystopian fiction? Is, is that why writers do it, do you think, in order to kind of go, if I, if I take one logical leap and follow it through, this is the inevitable conclusion? Well, I think that dystopian literature is kind of that scream into a world where everyone seems to be nodding and whispering and agreeing that something needs to change or they're not quite happy with the system. Mm. Um, dystopian literature allows you that space to explore those ideas. I mean, you know, in 1984... Um, we find so many resonances with it and you know today that makes complete sense you know double speak is the ability to uh, um, you know utterly believe two contradictory thoughts at the same time and that feels completely tailor-made for a presidency um, and a president who sim- simultaneously believes that three to five million illegals voted in the elections and that his victory in that election was completely fair and valid you know <laughs> there are all of these things but at the same time you know this is a book that was written about a particular kind of dystopian state um, it's an authoritarian, Stalinist future Britain based on the fears that Orwell felt most pressing in 1948. So, mm. you know, we, we can sort of, we can take these and we can use them as an energy sort of towards activism. But again, this is a thought experiment. It's just a bit of fun as well. With, with all of those books that I think have become quite well known recently, are there any other books from the sort of classics canon that we think should be getting a light shone on them because they have something to say about where we are now? I'm thinking perhaps of, of uh, We, which is another vintage classic and it has a similar similar theme to... to yes, it does. Well. Everybody is known by numbers. Mm. Um, I think it has a, there's very similar themes to Brave New World. Um, it has a fantastic new cover, actually, recently. But I just think often we, we, we go to the most obvious books at, at a time like this and I wonder sometimes if there's a slightly wider range of, of fiction that people could be reading. Well, it has been said that We inspired brave new world so um for anyone who's um read that then they should go back and see if they sort of see any parallels in we um and you know i think this idea that that is um looked at in we that sort of disillusion of our individual identity and also the disillusion of family as well obviously that's got parallels with the handmaid's tale Mm. what happens when you break down the family unit and you break all ties um that's completely fascinating i mean another book um that i really enjoyed that i read um last year was herland by charlotte perkins gilman Mm. um, which yeah that came out in 1915 and it looks at um what would a country run by women look like so you know this isn't going to give you any answers about what's going on in america what we should be doing about our political system but still you know what would a a country um, run by women look like you know we see it coming up in the power by naomi alderman Mm -hmm. it's a fun issue and so i would i would recommend that Fantastic. Well, very stimulating to talk about it, very stimulating to go and read those books. Plenty for our listeners to think about. Fiona, Charlotte, thank you so much. Thanks. And that's it for this month. Thanks to all our guests, Howard Jacobson, Charlotte Knight, Fiona Wilson, Timothy Snyder, Stuart Williams and Will Smith. Join us next month when we'll be talking about the counterculture. In the meantime, if you enjoy the Vintage Podcast, why not rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on and it'll help us reach even more book lovers. Until next time.